We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune in to DM Radio, the world's longest-running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. Yes, indeed. DM Radio back online in the era of hashtag COVID-19, baby. Things are changing. We do live in interesting times. I'm very happy to be with you here today. Once again, we're going to talk about a pretty hot topic out there in the world of information management and data, and that is artificial intelligence and ethics. That's right, a code of ethics for AI. Uh, that music you just heard, by the way, came from the movie Repo Man, 1983, Emilio Estevez, Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> he talks about the repo code. He's got a code of ethics. He's like, I will not, what is it? I will not harm any car nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction allow any car or the personal contents thereof come to harm. It's what I call the repo code, kid. Well, there's an ethical code for AI as well, or at least there should be. And we're going to talk today to two experts about all that. We've got Neil Radin of Hired Brains and Joseph D. Palantonio, a very respected analyst in our field of data management. We'll talk about ethics and AI. And uh, I'll kind of throw down the gauntlet in, in a couple different ways. One, I'll say that I do believe we're going to see some real adherence to ethical standards in the field of AI, at least to a certain degree from certain companies. But on the other side of that coin, we're going to see companies and people who just don't even give a hoot at all and are going to do whatever they can with these technologies to take uh, whatever advantage they can get. So my basis for saying there will be uh, honor among thieves, as the old expression goes, is that we see a lot of respect in large companies paid to Things like uh, personal privacy, things like email and PII, for example. Uh, I see this because we're in the business of lead generation, meaning we host webinars and we capture leads. People register for those webinars and then we give them to the sponsor. And that's the business model. It's a big, big business model. These days, there are lots of companies doing uh, LinkedIn oriented lead generation campaigns. So it's certainly an expanded battlefield, if you will. But you do see big companies paying attention to that, which is good. We like that. By the same token, again, there are going to be lots of folks who are just renegade and don't really care. And we should realize that, uh, you know, ethics is not, you're not necessarily talking about the law. You're talking about a code of conduct that is encouraged and recommended and people want you to adhere to, but you may not, quite frankly. So it's going to be an interesting thing to see play out, but AI is tremendously powerful. And I think it's going to be very difficult to enforce any sort of code of ethics. So we're really going to have to rely on people to just do the right thing. At least that's how it, it, it seems to me. So let's get our guests into the the works here. Neil Raden, you took some time to put some thoughts on paper and sent it to me. So I certainly appreciate that. Tell us your high level thoughts about ethics and artificial intelligence and why should people care and, and where you think things are going? Oh, <laughs> you know, um, there's about a thousand. Uh, there are about a thousand uh, AI ethicists out there, and I guess what troubles me is 99% of what they say is the same thing. Uh, I'm really concerned about people understanding what they need to do, um, and for certain kinds of frameworks to be put down that have teeth, and that's the problem. Um, you know, Eric, I did a lot of work uh, last year with the Society of Actuaries. And one thing about actuaries is they have a very, very strict code of professional conduct. And what they'd asked me to do was expand that code of conduct for actuarial practice. Uh, and it turns out we came up with a few things. One thing was uh, to avoid amateurish development. In other words, don't let people jump in to start building AI models when they don't know what they're doing. 
Another thing that's, I think, even more important is data. Uh, you, you can never take data at face value. Data has context. When you go out and you grab a source system of data, you don't know where that data came from. You don't know what it means. You don't know what kind of logic went into capturing it that way. It's not necessarily an accurate portrayal of reality. So the problem is, is that machine learning modelers love to get new data, and they're looking for new data all the time. And a lot of that data is, <clears throat> well, it's a good word for it. Well, it's not good. And the data brokers themselves can be unscrupulous. And you can very easily start building models to improve your presumed predictive capability uh, by adding a lot of very bad uh, unfairness and ethics into the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and speaking of data quality, you know, you bring up a really good point, which is what is the provenance of this data? Who has touched this data? You know, as we move forward, there are some very powerful technologies for controlling all that and for giving visibility into all of that. But the fact of the matter is most of the real world data that's being used for decision making and for optimizing business processes or just fueling business processes is logged in older systems, so-called legacy systems. And, you know, trying to corral all that is uh, is a job and a half, quite frankly. I mean, we see now in this data catalog business, there are some interesting things happening with machine learning, being able to scan all these different information sources and give some recommendations to the user about what goes where and which should be aligned with each other and so forth. But that's still pretty new. And it's, uh, it's really only the biggest corporations that are even engaging that, in that activity. But for the main, it seems to me, most of that data, most of this customer data, product data is sitting well outside the reach of AI algorithms. But what do you think? Well, I think it's a good idea, and and I've seen some nice progress in certain areas. Uh, Not a complete solution. Um, I I really, (laughs) I I, I think part of the problem is that people don't quite understand what machine learning can do and what it can't do. Uh, What it can't do is predict the future, because all it can ever do is look at patterns that it picks up out of existing data. Now, you may make assumptions about that, but if you really want to do prediction, you have to go back to good old modeling and simulation, and that's not machine learning. Uh, now, as far as, as far as AI or ML techniques being applied to this whole mess of data management, uh, I'm very positive about that. I don't know how much progress has been made. I've seen some good spots uh, but I've also seen a fair amount of what I call AI washing, meaning, oh, yeah, we have AI in our product. You really have to dig in and find out what they're doing. Uh, and this is especially true with natural language processing. Most of it is just, you know, uh, uh, another uh, front end uh, to what they do. But real natural language processing, you have to go to a data source and say, I'm looking at three different pricing models. Can you tell me which one is the best or which one is going to get me killed? And then the system (laughs) goes back and parses what you said and then has the power to go back and gather that data and make assumptions. To me, that's natural language processing, especially if you come back in a minute and say, oh, well, that's a lot of data. How about the first 100,000 without having to go back and repeat the query? So so, there's a lot of interesting things happening. Um, I've also seen a lot of uh, neural networks been involved in creating knowledge graphs that then build into data catalogs. Again, not a complete solution, but it's making progress. But my problem with all of this is that any system that provides advice um, uh, or takes action that affects people, I refer to that as the social context. And any time you're involved in the social context, you have to answer ethical questions about privacy or whether you're discrimination, uh, discriminating. Um, and I guess another question you want to ask is, does that only apply to AI models? Um, yes and no. The difference is that AI models use a vast amount of information, and there's just excellent opportunity to bring in unfairness and bias, and it can fire a 1,000 or 10,000 times before you know it's done anything wrong. Yeah, you, you bring up a lot of really good points here. And uh, 
Yeah. So in terms of, I love this concept you throw out there about the social context, right? Is this technology going to touch human beings, data relevant to human beings? Is it going to have an impact on people's lives? And I think you're right. And I, I think you were kind of hinting at explainability there too, right? Well, explainability is a tough problem, right? Um, I think the onus is on researchers, um, not on uh, corporate developers. I think that researchers have to spend some time thinking about uh, the algorithms that they're developing and how they affect the people on whose data those algorithms are based. And they need to develop explainability into what they can do so that a non-expert can look at a model and say, oh, I understand what's going on here. I see a problem. Yeah, no, that's a very, very good point. And let's bring in our other guests uh, into the conversation here and just kind of view this as a roundtable discussion. Since it's just the three of us here, I'll bring Joseph D. Palantonio in. Joseph, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, and your thoughts on ethics and AI. Okay. Well, I've been concerned about technical ethics for a, a long time. Uh, even back in undergraduate school, I had a philosophy thesis uh, going for a second major, which was to try to use platonic forms as a basics for building a technical ethics framework. <laughs> and today, wow. uh, which is 40 years later, we're looking at a variety of frameworks. Uh, there's some universities that are doing some interesting things. Uh, the Oxford Morality Project has looked at seven universal rules that they consider building the morality and the ethics around the world. Uh, the Marcula Center from the University of Santa Clara, Santa Clara University, has five lenses that they use to build a framework. And what I found interesting about these frameworks is I feel they're necessary to encode into the algorithm and the design choices we make around machine learning, artificial intelligence, whatever you really want to call our advanced data analytics, to both inform our own decision-making along an ethical curve. And as Neil points out, when these AIs begin doing action within a social context, they need to be able to have some accountability for their own ethics around the AI decisions. And one of those questions then becomes, should an ethical framework, an ethical measure, yardstick for AI be the same as for a human being? And you could look at, say, the case of a self-driving car, and everyone likes the trolley problem for that, right? The car has a choice. Do I take out the little old lady on the sidewalk? Do I take out the kid crossing the crosswalk, chasing his ball? Uh, do I kill my driver? What do I do? And is that the same? Do we apply the same ethics to that decision as we would to a human driver? Mm. That's fascinating stuff. I really like where you're going with this. And uh, I think the key would be how do you go about implementing the adherence to this sort of practice, right? And that I think would probably have to start in in schools and colleges and other places, you'd have to have programs. I mean, uh, Neil has been working on um, a program about how to instill these sorts of appreciations for ethical conduct. But again, it's it's pretty it's pretty unwieldy out there, and the business world tends to focus on just getting things done, right? So how how would you propose that we encourage people to a- approach this in such a responsible manner? Well. It is that way, and I've been working with Ali Rabai of Rabai Analytics Group with his AI readiness program, and my input into that has been our ethical framework of looking at cultural, regulatory, economic, political, and environmental factors to algorithmically encode this type of framework into AI, but also to bring that type of framework into an AI readiness program. So through that type of learning, uh, the Markula Center um, actually had an app for that. 
you could download an app from uh, the Apple Store or the Play Store and help with your ethical decision-making. And the purpose of that is not that the app was better at making ethical choices than the human. The point of that is to build a habit of thinking about ethics. Mm -hmm. And that is where we have to come in. We have to have a habit of approaching each decision from our own personal ethical framework, Mm -hmm. from our own personal moral compass. And then how do we use data How do we use the ebb and flow of data throughout what we call sensor analytics ecosystems when we get into things like smart cities, smart regions? How do we use these frameworks within a architecture that brings privacy and transparency, security and convenience in using these tools within every transaction and analytic point within that ecosystem. Mm. And as you talk about, Eric, with data orchestration, there's an ebb and flow of data now. It's not source target. It's not ETL. It's not the old-fashioned ESB uh, type of application integration either. Uh, We have to decide from a privacy standpoint, from a security standpoint, what data needs to be aggregated where, what data needs to be used there, and is there justification for keeping that data beyond the immediate needs? That's very, and you know what, I just had an epiphany as you were talking about how we can see this happen. It's kind of interesting, and it's going to happen through your day-to-day technologies, it's already happening to a certain extent. You may have noticed on your iPhone or even I think Samsung has something similar where it'll default to showing your work hours versus your after work hours, kind of implying that, oh, you shouldn't be working now, it's after hours. Uh, But that's a bit of a moral code coming through, right? Or it's some ethical standard that these companies, Apple and and others are doing. You see it with Microsoft, with Microsoft Teams, how they're now suggesting that you have an hour of focus time every day where you're not in meetings, you're not scheduled to do something else, which is interesting. I mean, I have a strange sort of dichotomous view of this, right? We can get into in the next segment, because on the one hand, I think it's good. I think that people do need to pay attention to time of the day. They do need to watch out for having too many meetings, for example. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly guilty for biting off more than I can chew on a regular basis. It's kind of in my personality. And then I have to figure out how to wrangle through all these different things. But we're going to see it come through our phones and through our applications, our workspaces, if you will, these kinds of recommendations of how to behave. So I think that you're really onto something, and, and Neil as well. And I think we're going to see this just woven into the technology fabric around us on a regular basis. But we'll pick that up after the break, folks. You're listening to the longest running show in the world about data, DM Radio. Beep's coming. You know what to do. Hey, I'm going to just rip this Band-Aid off. We need to break up. You're just, you're not good for me. I'm always sweaty and uncomfortable around you, and I'm not getting any benefits from this relationship. You're just a basic memory foam mattress. I deserve better. (laughs) And before you ask, yes, there is someone else. I've been seeing the purple mattress online for a while now. Don't blame yourself. (laughs) How can you compete with a bed that totally supports me, hugs my pressure points, and sleeps so effortlessly cool? Not to mention the 100-night trial and free shipping. Now that's a bed with benefits. It'll make me feel better than you ever could. Break up with your old mattress and get with Purple today. Take advantage of Purple's Snorin' 20 sale and get free sheets and a premium sleep mask when you buy any Purple mattress. That's up to a $158 value. Claim your free premium Purple gifts today by texting RELAX to 84888. That's keyword R-E-L-I-X to 84888. Data rates may apply. 
Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans. 30% of Americans who are planning home improvements of $5,000 or more will pay for those renovations with a high-interest credit card. That may not be a great idea. A better idea may be to take cash out of your home with a Quicken Loans 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 3.99%, APR 4.23%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rates subject to change. Pay 2% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLS number 33. What if you could change one thing about a room and it changed everything? A completely new room by changing just one thing, the floor. Now, during Lumber Liquidator's flooring huge winter sale, you can find hundreds of quality floors on sale, like solid hardwood and waterproof, at our absolute lowest prices of the season. And with special financing, you can make that change sooner than you think. These are the floors homes are built on. Lumber Liquidator's flooring. Winter season is January. I'm Justin Rothman, and this is How I See It. During these quarantine times, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are being more and more inventive and creative trying to kill time. I'm surprised there isn't a new sport that has been invented yet. And yes, with that word sport, that is a very luxurious word being said nowadays with no sports being played. And a lot of us sports people who usually have sports to watch to kill time don't have anything to watch. So if you're not playing video games of sport at home to kill time. I'm sure there's other ways that you figured out how to spend your time. Like I saw some people juggling toilet paper, toilet paper soccer, toilet paper volleyball, toilet paper basketball, and so on and so forth. So it seems like we're trying to kill time, but with the wrong stuff that we initially bought anyway, which makes no sense, but makes enough sense at the same time. I'm Justin Rothman. This is how I see it. Do you have a great idea for a radio show but have no idea where to start? Or have you been hosting a podcast for a while and want to take it to the next level? If so, you need the Gab Radio Network. To host a show on the Gab Radio Network, all you need is your voice. And we'll handle the rest. From technical engineering to full-service audio production and much more. Every show on the Gab Radio Network can be heard on our station on the TuneIn Radio app. Plus, we put all our shows on our satellite, which is accessed by 5,500 stations. And here's the best part. You can host from anywhere you want. There are many means to connect to the Gab Radio Network remotely, and our staff of highly trained engineers and producers will make you sound like you're right here in studio. So, if you want to be on the Gab Radio Network, the same network that hosts the Small Business Advocate, Radio MD, and Talkin' Pets, send an email right now to sales at gabradionetwork.com. That's sales at gabradionetwork.com. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks. Back here on DM Radio, we're talking all about ethics and artificial intelligence with my good friends and colleagues and fellow analysts, Joseph D. Palantonio and Neil Radin. And uh, Neil, I'll bring you back in. Joseph was really getting my mind rolling there in that last segment, talking about this ethical framework and how it could be very useful in helping us in our day-to-day human behavior, right? And that's the whole thing about ethics. Mm-hmm. Like, do, Does an ethical standard actually embed itself in your behavior and your decision-making process? And then I had my bit of an epiphany there that, yeah, actually we could see this articulated through our technologies, through Microsoft Teams, for example, which tells you when you're not getting enough alone time, not enough focus time on your Apple iPhone, when it tells you that, uh, you know, you should sit up or walk around or you know, things of this nature, which is, I mean, it's kind of weird, but it's kind of cool. I don't know. What are your thoughts on all that, Neil? Well, I don't completely agree. I think that, um, it's not like self-improvement or yoga or uh, eating a paleo diet. Uh, I think there's an essential tension between the economic aspects of AI and the ethical aspects of AI. And the people who are producing it uh, are producing it to make money. And then there's also the unintended consequences. Let me give you an example. Uh, there's a lot written now about the ability of AI to do a better job finding cancer uh, tumors and breast cancer than the best radiologists. Now, you might think that that's a good idea, 
But the problem is what happens after that is not necessarily such a good idea. People end up getting a lot of unnecessary treatment. Um, the organizations inflate their 10-year survival because the early detection is 10 years before, but it turns out the mortality isn't the same thing. So is it really a good thing? And I think those are the kind of questions that need to be answered. But the push of technology and the push of science is not really paying attention to it. Um, I, I also think that um, there's, this, there's this agonizing desire um, to push this thing forward. Uh, one thing that I'm doing in concert with somebody else is we've developed an actuarial AI certification program. So we actually go out to insurance companies and train them for a few days about all the bad things <laughs> they can do and hopefully guide them to sort of the good things they can do. Mm -hmm. But on a daily basis, they're under pressure to do things that have to do with making money for their organization. So right. it's not it's not a perfect situation. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, the EU is way ahead of us in putting out uh, uh, ideas about this. Uh, so has the office of the, the president's office of something, which was a joke, by the way. Um, it didn't have anything in it that wasn't already said before. It had no teeth. Um, the OECD, which represents 37 countries. But now you have some states like New York and California and so forth that are going off on their own. But the one that really troubles me is that Washington state just signed into law about facial recognition. And if you read the document, it looks really good. The problem with it was it was written by Microsoft. <laughs> and now Microsoft is out lobbying all the other states right. to adopt it. Right. And when, when you get down to the nitty gritty, th there, <laughs> there are some things in it that are not okay. Um, I think that um, there's a clause that said something about um, you can do it without a warrant if there's, quote, exigent circumstances exist. Well, oh, what geez. the hell does that mean? Right. Um, so I, I, this is a trouble. This is a struggle. It's going to be it's going to be a yin yang all the way. And I don't think that developing frameworks out of the blue are really going to be that valuable. Yeah, no, this is, you bring up a really good point, right? But, and this is kind of the issue I'm trying to wrangle with myself here as we think through all this. And maybe, Joseph, I'll bring you back in here. You know, Neil is, is basically alluding to what I see happening as well, but it, it goes a bit deeper, right? And it goes deeper because we have these companies, these software companies that are so incredibly powerful. Google, YouTube, of course, um, part of Google, Facebook, um, LinkedIn is part of Microsoft now, so Microsoft has a huge influence on uh, on organizations. And, you know, I, I'm reminded, I'll get philosophical here with you because I was a philosophy double major myself way back when. And uh, when the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act was being debated, I got on a plane, I was flying somewhere, and I was reading Lao Tzu's Understanding the Mysteries, which is fascinating stuff. I'm a big fan of, uh, of Eastern philosophy and, and Eastern thought. And uh, I, I was thinking about the Affordable Care Act, and I opened up the book, and the first thing I read was, when the laws are complex, the bandits will abound, right? This is 3,000 years ago that this guy wrote that stuff. 3,000 years ago, so 1,000 years before Christ. And, of course, the Orient, this guy's writing, when the laws are complex, the bandits will abound, and uh, I remember I said that one time to uh, my partner, Dr. Robin Bloor, and he always says such interesting things. His comment was, do you know how many laws Napoleon had? I was like, no. He said seven. <laughs> or, of course, the Napoleonic Code, which uh, is still alive in some form today, at least in spirit in uh, Louisiana. But uh, the idea was that, that what Napoleon saw, as I understand it, was that things had become so complex, you had to start over and needed a new code. For government. And I almost feel like we're at that point right now. And you see it in all this conversation about ethics. It's everywhere. Ethics is a very hot topic today, not just for artificial intelligence, but for data, for commerce, for uh, international relations, etc. So I, I think we are at this really important time. If you look at the history of mankind over the past even three, 5,000 years or so, this is a very strange time now. We're clearly at an inflection point because of the internet, because of technologies like artificial intelligence, et cetera. So I'll just kind of throw that over to you as a, as a big fat softball coming your way. What do you think about all that? And, and do we need to, to frankly look very hard and, and uh, meaningfully at the nature of laws and regulations in our country and around the world right now? 
Eric, you really kind of evolved there with that conversation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I went, yeah. I got outside the realms here, but uh, I'm testing the boundary. Well, that's a good boundary. Uh, yeah. I mean, do we go back to the code of Hammurabi as opposed to the Napoleonic code? Or look at the evolution from those early days to when Napoleon said things have gotten too complex. Let's simplify it to seven basics. And somewhere in the middle there were the Ten Commandments. And how do we look at this? I think that a reset, and you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the program about COVID-19 and what the pandemic is doing to things right now. Would that give us a hard reset or is that going to lead to even more complexity in the regulatory environment? Um, one thing, we also have this tendency uh, to look very much within our own culture and not really look at cultures beyond our own. Uh, there are 190-some countries in the world today. Uh, there are thousands of different cultures. Uh, when the Oxford Morality Project derived their seven basic rules of morality that they felt were common, they looked at 600 cultures. Wow. Well, there's, that's only 600. But also, one of the interesting things from that that talks directly to what you're saying, the fifth of their seven is defer to authority. And when I heard that, I thought, no, I, my culture is you question authority. I'm an old hippie. I mean, right. you know, my favorite course in college was Anarchy 101. Right. Uh, you know, what do you mean you defer to authority as a universal moral code? Uh, but if you look at it from the standpoint of don't run a red light because you're going to get into an accident, that's deferring to authority. If you look at it from the standpoint of trying to follow this myriad of complex laws that are on the books, you're going to run into things like in Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania, you're still not allowed to graze your goats on the town square. Right. And in Pennsylvania overall, you still have to have a horse in front of your car with a green flag and a horse behind your car with a red flag to let other carriages know you're coming. In your horseless carriage. That's still on the books. It never went away. Wow. Uh, so this layer of complexity is certainly happening. And how do we combat this? How do we look at things, as Neil was talking about this new Washington regulation, but written by Microsoft? And one thing I kind of look, especially in that area of facial recognition, have you ever read David Brin's The Transparent Society? No. That's a really interesting take, and it's, I think it's over 20 years old now. I think it was written in the 1990s, but I have to double-check that, about how the only way to avoid trading our privacy for our freedom is by opening up the surveillance state so hmm. that anyone can feed to it, but anyone can draw from it as well. Uh, one of the recurring themes in some of his future society books are older people uh, who use the cameras on their cell phones to protect themselves from muggers or from nasty teenagers, kind of the clockwork orange droogs hmm. who might be attacking them, they whip out their cell phone and said, I'm streaming you to the nearest police station. Right. Right. You know, so how do we balance the privacy and the transparency? How do we do it conveniently? How do we make sure we're secure? And how do we build those regulations into our frameworks? Neil, you, you mentioned that you felt that building frameworks out of the blue weren't going to help, but I don't know any other way of actually bringing these things into our AI algorithms. Hmm. Um, one of the things I look at is causal inference. And to me, the ability to bring causal inference into machine learning, 
algorithms through directed acyclic graphs such that they understand the causation, they become explainable as they move towards cognition means that we can go from contextualization to cognition through causal inference if we understand and if the AI, if we ever get to that point, can understand how both the consequence of their effect and one and how can we understand the cause of their effect hmm. so we get these cause consequence diagrams that we used to use in system engineering with boolean logic how do we build that in through directed acyclic graphs and graph algorithms and these knowledge graphs that neil mentioned into the evolving ai algorithms as they learn hmm. and wow. i think that's Kind of a convoluted answer to your question of this softball question you threw to me. <laughs> well, and and so so just uh, thinking through all this stuff, and yeah, Neil, go ahead and comment on that if you want. Well, you know, if you look around the world, and or even look around our country, um, I'm reminded of the fifteenth book of Bokanon in Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> One of my favorite the books. title. <laughs> the title of the book is. Given human history, what possible hope can there be for the future of mankind? And the entire book had one word in it. None. (laughs) (laughs) Busy, busy. Busy, busy, busy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, I I, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. But um, I know that an AI machine does not have an ethical framework. So it's up to us to give an AI machine an ethical framework how hard that is, how duplicitous it is, and how well it can be enforced, I don't know. Um, I actually developed my own ethical framework about three years ago, and it had six points in it. Of course, nobody paid any attention to it. Um, But I think that, you know, when you talked about cultures, Joseph, um, one of the things in AI is clearly fairness myopia. There's no question about it. Um, Using AI ethically ought to reflect that, you know, fairness isn't uniform. It's just inversions of it. And my favorite example of that is uh, is something called uh, um, Conway's Law. I had it written down here somewhere. I would rather quote it than, than just read it. All. Anyway, he said that organizations build systems according to their internal values and communications. So if you ever wanted to enforce any kind of ethical development of this, you'd have to go against that, and that's going to be very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing about it, and I just, I just want to bring this up. One of the problems with algorithms is they don't cost anything to fire. You can fire an algorithm once, or you can fire it a million times. It doesn't cost a dime. So once you put something out there that's wrong, you can create great harm before anybody even knows it. Yeah. My favorite example of this came from the book by uh, Kathy O'Neill uh, in Weapons of Math Destruction. She was talking about um, a college student who had bipolar disorder who wanted to get a job as a grocery bagger. Hey, you know what? Let's Um, pick this up. Let's pick this up at the break. Hey, let's pick this up at the break. This could be a good one. Folks, you're listening to the longest show in the world about data. We're talking DM Radio. Send me an email, info at dmradio.biz. We'll be right back with this absolutely fascinating conversation with Neil Radin and Joseph DiPalantonio. Stand by. At Quicken Loans, our 17,000 team members know that home is so much more than a house. That's because our clients tell us all the time. Hey, this is Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans, and we want to help you save money on your mortgage with some of the lowest refinancing rates ever. Rates are historically low. You may be able to reduce your rate and save money on your monthly mortgage payment right now. Pay off some credit card debt or put some money towards that new bathroom or kitchen you've always wanted. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 3.99%. APR, 4.23%. That's right, 3.99%. While we can't predict what will happen in the future, we do know that rates have dropped, and now is the time to save money on your mortgage. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. 
to learn how refinancing now may be the right mortgage solution for you. That's 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rates subject to change. Pay 2% fee to see this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License and all. Is immune support on your mind these days? Quantum Nutrition Labs is here to help. While supplies last, a wide variety of high-quality, immune-focused supplements are 20% off, including vitamin C, zinc, and vitamin D3. Now is a great time to stock up on the items you'll want to keep on hand, ready to use when you need them. Call 888-588-7578 to speak with our highly trained nutritional consultants. That's 888-588-7578. Or visit us online at qnlabs.com. That's qnlabs.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Bob Marshall, PhD, host of Healthline. Tune in to get your questions answered and hear the latest breakthrough information for you and your family. Our product line, Quantum Nutrition Labs, delivers what others only promise, nutrition that really works. Here's today's top automotive tech story. I'm Nick Miles. Hyundai has taken action in response to the coronavirus, COVID-19. All employees are working from home except for a small group of employees in certain departments, such as auto repair. Hyundai has reinstated a new Hyundai Assurance job loss protection program, where Hyundai will make up to six months of payment for new owners who lose their job that have purchased or leased their vehicle between March 14th through April 30th, 2020, through Hyundai Capital. For more automotive tech news, go to testmiles.com. The all-new Highlander comes equipped with five USB ports, perfect for fully charging everyone's smartphone. No phone is dying on your watch. That's how you go Highlander. Toyota, let's go places. May not be compatible with all mobile phones, MP3, WMA players, and like models. You're listening to Global American Broadcasting, the Gab Radio Network. For more info on our programs and services, including technical operations and syndication, Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio. We're getting deep today, folks, deep, deep learning, right? Artificial intelligence, deep learning. One of the many uh, facets of AI and ML is so-called deep learning. We're not doing that today, uh, but we're learning about deep learning, at least to a certain degree. And Neil Radin had a very interesting story you were telling You'll tell us again uh, from the top about this anecdote of yours. Uh, which one? <laughs> Whatever you were just saying. Eric, which, which one? Oh, oh, no, this wasn't an anecdote, although I do have an anecdote about it. Uh, it goes back to the uh, business process reengineering scare, the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I was developing a data warehouse for a Fortune 500 company for the finance department, and it turned out that we didn't have the calculations for their statutory uh, uh, operational cash flow model. It was in compiled DL1 code. And the only person who knew the logic had been laid off. Uh, so I had to fly out to Wisconsin and go fishing with the guy and get the code wow. <laughs> for, for a Fortune 500 company's operating cash flow model. All right. wow. Anyway, that brings me into this whole idea about job force automation. Yeah. So, so one school of thought is that most jobs have – Um, unseen complexities that currently require a human in the loop, uh, such as different types of of data machine can't cope with, right? Or or the person who remembers everybody's birthday. Now, uh, Oliver Ratzesberger, the former CEO of Teradata, had a nice thing to say uh, that there was still a lot of work to do in companies that wasn't getting done and those people could could, could fill those roles. Uh, But in many periods of realignment, organizations find that staff you know, they've been made redundant and they were responsible for things that were never recognized, like this guy with the code. Uh, but the subtlety and the finesse of that is never described. They say, oh, that's the truth, but they're never really clear about it. Uh, good intentions are that AI will augment workers rather than reduce them. But it really overlooks the aspect of the learning of AI. You know, you got to plan for the situation where the workers um, can be replaced. Uh, it, because AI is going to get it at some point. So AI as a machine doesn't have an ethical framework, and that means we have to give it an ethical framework. So I'm, I'm 
um, in the short term, um, optimistic about the job reduction, but in the long term, I'm not. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I personally view AI in that context very similarly as I do past mechanical innovations like the car, for example, or the fax machine. I remember my dad one time when I was, I don't know, 14 or so, when fax machines first came out and became prominent, he said something to me that was kind of funny. It shows he's a bit of a thinker himself. He said, yeah, you would think that um, the fax machine would be great and you'd get ahead of the work and everything. But he said, in reality, now that you know you can just fax something, you procrastinate even further <laughs> until the very end because you know you can just fax it. So there are these um, sort of competing value cycles in or or – I don't know what you would call them even in leveraging these kind of technologies. But again, I don't, I look at what AI can do in terms of optimizing processes to me, really it does two things. It either optimizes a decision point or it somehow classifies or segments people or things into a group. And so you know, really we're a pretty long way from AI just outright replacing people, I think that you're going to see this sort of steady curve of adoption as more and more people use this stuff. And frankly, I think most of it is just going to get baked into, <clears throat> once again, the technologies that we use. So if you look at, for example, uh, I noticed in Gmail a few months ago, if you're in the web client and you're just typing away, it's now suggesting things for you that you can accept or just ignore. And I'm sure there's some kind of machine learning algorithm underneath that's been tracking what you say and tracking what other people say, which is kind of interesting. But the point is that just showed up one day. I didn't have to train some model. Microsoft did that for me and all of a sudden it's there affecting what I do. I'll throw that over to Joseph. That kind of gets back to your point about maybe how we could encode these ethical frameworks. And it's really gonna boil down to people at these large corporations listening to folks like you and Neil, and perhaps myself to some degree, and taking this stuff seriously. What do you think, Joseph? Yeah, well, that's, and, and not, you know, Neil and I, and, and the ones who are really at the forefront, like Markula or uh, Cade, the Center for, uh, shoot, I lost it, something, Center for Applied Data Ethics at USF. Uh, these places are thinking about this and, and are working with these organizations. Uh, we are moving away from, to a certain extent, governmental control to private corporate control. And that's a frightening thing in this area as well, as, as Neil pointed out with the regulation for video surveillance uh, in Washington written by Microsoft. And, right. You know. As these things, you know, I have uh, someone in my life um, who likes to say that, oh, if this was more like a business, life would be better. I don't necessarily <laughs> agree with him, but uh, because I think they look it on as uh, the prime motivator for business is customer satisfaction. I look on it as the prime motivator for business is quarterly profit. Right which is both short-term and, and not necessarily giving a dang about what the customer wants. But in the main, uh, companies, these large corporations, do need to respond to customer desires. And when they bring in a feature, if that feature catches on with the customer, it evolves and grows and responds even more to the customer. If not, you find that project going away and the handful of customers who had come to rely on it are suddenly disappointed and a major tool that they may have adopted is gone. You see this a lot in, in the Google world, right? Where Google suddenly just, oh, we're, we're shelving that project. Didn't work out for us. Right. But, you know, there's well, 100,000 people who loved it. Right. Out of 7 billion, who cares? <laughs> uh, <laughs> right I, so you have those types of complexities coming into these situations uh, as far as you know like my own uh, ethical framework that you know we like to see getting algorithmically included into machine learning going to AI that's one approach Neely said if we don't give them a framework what else is there well, one thing I've been hearing more is if you give these deep 
learning algorithms the goal of emulating human morality, mm. they'll achieve it on their own. Mm. Oh, that that gives me pause for thought. <laughs> I, it, it's it's difficult for me to just blanket agree with that. Oh yeah, that's all we have to do. Uh, <laughs> and it's hey, Joe, a couple a couple of years ago, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. a couple of a couple of years ago, the German Ministry of Transport decided to create a comprehensive list of ethical practices for autonomous cars. And in, in, in typical German precision, it was like 20 million ideas, right? They put it into practice, and the very first car that drove crashed into a barrier. <laughs> oh, no. I, think, I, think putting, I, think putting, I think putting morality into a machine is way, way, way beyond our capability at this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe some guidelines with some oversight. I, look, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this should be a wild, wild west. We really do have to do something. Um, I'm not looking at our federal government to help us. Uh, governments in Europe are doing a better job. Uh, but I think industry has to understand that they all live in this world, too. And uh, it may take some regulation, but uh, look, look at it this way. You know, what is consciousness? What is self-awareness? What is the ability to look back on things that have happened and and make uh, conclusions about what the moral thing to do is next? We're never going to, I'm not sure we're never going to get, but we're not going to get there yet. Maybe with quantum computing, who knows, right? Uh, But without those things, anything we do is artifice, and I'm not sure it's enough. Um, Mm. And that's that's my feeling. I think that uh, we're never going to get this right. It's never going to be perfect. We could, still can make a lot of progress. Yeah, that's that's we're, a good point. Go ahead, Joseph, real quick. Uh-huh. Well, and and what you were saying, you know, with the the twenty million rules, that's the difference between rules based algorithms and pattern based versus goal based neural networks. And it kind of goes back mm-hmm. to: can we just give a, a deep learning algorithm? the goal of emulating our human morality, but do we really know what our human morality is despite these various studies yeah. today? Yeah. So I yeah. agree. Isn't that the issue? I think. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. there are lots that, of, I mean, that, that's yeah. where we are. Uh, but, yeah. Well, go ahead. Got one but this isn't new, Eric. This didn't start with AI. You know, what about, what about, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, science, or what the hell you call them, and, and, and just any kind of predictive stuff, anything rules engines. Uh, this issue has been hanging around a long time. It's not just an AI issue, but my contention is that AI is capable of doing so much more damage because of the scale. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, we're coming up at the end of the live show. We'll have our podcast bonus coming up next. And folks, if you're listening live and you're like, oh, I want that podcast bonus, Go to dmradio.biz. That's where you'll find all of our shows archived. You can find us on most of the podcast networks out there. <clears throat> and like I say, send me an email, info at dmradio.biz. If you want to be on a show, we want to know what you want to know. Tell us what's interesting, what's uh, what's pressing. We want to hear your anecdotes. We want to get you on the show to talk about this stuff because these are very, very interesting times, folks. I can tell you, and uh, Neil is correct, this is not new. It's been around for a long time. But what is new is really the scale that we have but the good thing is i think we have fewer chokes to th- fewer tropes to choke meaning microsoft google but we need a government that's going to actually do that we'll see if that happens we'll catch you on the other side folks you've been listening to dm radio